Thank you very much. It's a great honor to be here at St. Peter's on Capitol Hill. I'm so grateful for the invitation from the Thomistic Institute, Young Professionals of Washington, D.C., and the young adults here of St. Peter's. We'll begin with a reading from Matthew 13 and a prayer. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure buried in a field, which a person finds and hides again, and out of joy goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant searching for fine pearls. When he finds a pearl of great price, he goes and sells all that he has and buys it. Let us pray. Almighty God, we praise you for the kingdom of heaven. We ask you now to pour forth your Holy Spirit upon us, that we, in this passing world, may long more to be with you forever. We make this prayer in the name of Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, God, forever and ever. Amen. Our Lady, Gate of Heaven, Amen. in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. This evening's lecture is titled, What is Heaven Like? And we're going to be looking at that question of what is heaven like? I'll give this talk, and afterwards we'll have some time for Q&A. The passage that I read to you from Matthew 13 has a comment from St. Thomas Aquinas where he quotes St. Gregory the Great. He says, Gregory says that this is heavenly glory because the good is naturally desirable and man always wants to exchange a lesser good for a greater good. Man's highest good is heavenly glory. When he has found this, he should abandon all things for it. And now St. Thomas quotes the psalm, One thing I have asked of the Lord, this I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. One thing. Our life has many things. And we live in a world that passes away. I pray that this talk may be a time of great grace, where we are touched by God, to be lifted up and to think about things eternal, about the possibility of always being with God, of having happiness forever. This talk is divided into four sections. The first one is simply our need to think about heaven. And then the second one, seeing God, the beatific vision. The third section is the resurrection of the body, and the fourth, the society of angels and saints forever. We begin with our need to think about heaven. What are you living for? You are going to die. This time on earth is very brief. All sorts of people on this earth don't know exactly how to answer the question of what's What's life about? What am I really living for? And if they do answer the question, the answer could be something that passes away. God has made us. He has made us in his own image and likeness. And of all the things on this earth, we are made to the image of God in our immortal, immaterial soul. We are created, created to exist forever. And this life on earth, which passes away, is precisely the time 
where we can accept God's plan and to be able to accept the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, to be headed to the Father. In his great love for us, God sent his only Son, so that way we may be saved. And heaven is that everlasting life of peace, of being with God, of always having that joy of possessing God. Now, during this life on earth, we have free will, where we can determine where we go. You determined to come here this evening, to, to be here to listen about what is heaven like. In all sorts of ways, we make determinations. Ultimately, the big determination is, where do you want your life headed? The very, very big picture. It's like an archer who is having an arrow and wants to shoot the arrow. Where do you aim? God wants us to know that there is an aim that we can go to him. Now, our Lord Jesus Christ, who suffered, died, and rose for us, is now seated at the right hand of God the Father. He has sent his Holy Spirit to fill the earth, so that way, filled by the Holy Spirit, we may, in Christ, go back to the Father. We have the Catholic Church and the sacraments that Christ instituted and entrusted to the church, so that way we may get to heaven. But there are all sorts of people on this earth that really don't have much in appreciation for heaven. And I want to share with you now something comical from Mark Twain's The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, Chapter 1. You know Huckleberry Finn? Well, listen to Huckleberry Finn talk about the widow Douglas's sister, Miss Watson, and think about his attitude to heaven. Huckleberry Finn says, Miss Watson, a tolerable slim old maid with goggles on, had just come to live with her and took a set at me now with a spelling book. She worked me middle and hard for about an hour, and then the widow made her ease up. I couldn't stood it much longer. Then for an hour, it was deadly dull, and I was fidgety. Miss Watson would say, Don't put your feet up there, Huckleberry, and don't scrunch up like that, Huckleberry. Set up straight. And pretty soon she'd say, Don't gap and stretch like that, Huckleberry. Why don't you try to behave? Then, she told me about the bad place. And I said, I wished I was there. <laughs> she got mad then, but I didn't mean no harm. All I wanted was to go somewhere. All I wanted was a change. I weren't particular. She said it was wicked to say what I said. Said she wouldn't say it for the whole world. She was going to live as to go to the good place. Well. I couldn't see no advantage in going where she was going. So I made up my mind I wouldn't try for it. But I never said so because it would only make trouble and wouldn't do no good. Huckleberry Finn does not express the Christian faith. <laughs> but he has encountered 
the widow Douglas's sister, Miss Watson, who likes to teach about the Christian faith. And Huckleberry Finn doesn't want to go where she's going. All sorts of people have heard only a little bit about heaven, and frankly, they're not really interested in it. Okay, we have a lot of people here this evening who are interested in heaven, but there are a lot of people in this world who have heard a little bit about heaven. No, thank you. So the very first thing is to think about our need to consider what is heaven like. We're talking about forever and ever, and that the Catholic Church says that this is all happiness. How in this world could be? Well, it's not in this world. The next section is seeing God, the beatific vision's happiness. The Catechism of the Catholic Church says, those who die in God's grace and friendship and are perfectly purified live forever with Christ. Right? So notice how that to get to heaven, we must die. We must die in God's grace and friendship. And we must be perfectly purified. Okay? So this is just a few logical steps. If you're living here on earth, you're not in heaven. Um, and then we must die with the grace that Jesus won for us by his passion. His own suffering, death, and resurrection is what opens up the gates of heaven for us. And then if we have not been pure, perfectly purified, God in his mercy allows us to be purified in purgatory. All souls in purgatory go to heaven. Now, St. John says in his first letter, chapter 3, Beloved, we are God's children now. What we shall be has not yet been revealed. We do know that when it is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope based on him makes himself pure, as he is pure. Right? So notice that we are already God's children. And what we shall be has not yet been revealed. That there's something very mysterious about the life of God's children in heaven. Something even more wondrous. We shall be like God in an extraordinary way. And then this is the time of the theological virtue of hope. And that our hope then is based on him. So that way we may be pure just as he is pure. We may be purified. In St. Paul's first letter to the Corinthians chapter 2, he cites Isaiah 64. As it is written, what eye has not seen and ear has not heard and what has not entered the human heart, what God has prepared for those who love him, this God has revealed to us through the Spirit. Now, of all things about heaven, the most important thing is seeing God, being united to God in what is traditionally known as the beatific vision. St. Thomas Aquinas says in his Compendium of Theology, man's consummation consists in the attainment of his last end, which is perfect beatitude or happiness, and this consists in the vision of God. The beatific vision entails immutability in the intellect and will. As regards the intellect, 
its questing ceases, when at last it comes to the first cause in which all truth can be known. The will's variability ceases too, for when it reaches its last end, in which is contained the fullness of all goodness, it finds nothing further to be desired. The will is subject to change because it craves what it does not possess. Clearly, therefore, the final consummation of man consists in perfect repose or unchangeableness as regards both intellect and will. Some may recall how St. Augustine, in the first paragraph of his Confessions, talks about our heart is restless until it rests in you. That restlessness is throughout this journey on earth. And the fullness of rest is precisely being with God in heaven. We use this phrase, rest in peace. But when we use this phrase, rest in peace, we may be thinking of something like sleeping. St. Augustine says, heaven is far, far different from sleeping. Heaven is being fully awake, fully conscious to a degree that we don't have the, the experience of here on this earth. Rather than being like dead to the world of just in some sort of la-la land, it is the joy of having our intellect and will, our highest part of, of, of our soul, united to God. In question 12 of the Prima Pars of the Summa, St. Thomas considers the created intellect, how our soul in heaven sees the divine essence, and is united by God's power. St. Thomas says, When any created intellect sees the essence of God, the essence of God itself becomes the intelligible form of the intellect. Hence, it is necessary that some supernatural disposition should be added to the intellect in order that it may be raised up to such a great and sublime height. Now, since the natural power of the created intellect does not avail to enable it to see the essence of God, as it is necessary that the power of understanding should be added by divine grace. Now, this increase of the intellectual powers is called the illumination of the intellect, as we shall also call the intelligible object itself by the name of light of illumination. And this is the light spoken of in the book of Revelation. The glory of God has enlightened it, namely the society of the blessed who see God. By this light, the blessed are made deiform, like to God, according to the saying, when he shall appear, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. St. Thomas is talking about how in heaven, because we are so weak, we need the supernatural power called the light of glory that raises the intellect up, so that way that there's nothing that gets between you and God. During this life on earth, we have all sorts of images, okay? So, uh, so that for me to see you, there's an image that is within me. In heaven, it's not just simply uh, that kind of imaging, but God is so close that God himself is with us, united to us, holding us in a way that is unlike anything here upon this earth. Again, nothing, nothing gets between you and God. And that in heaven, that the saints have different views of God based upon their charity. 
St. John of the Cross says how in the evening of life we'll be judged on love. And all those who die with the theological virtue of charity then will go to heaven. And that those who have more charity, in a sense, get a better view of God. The Latin tradition talks about those in heaven as those who are comprehending, but there's an important distinction here. That this type of comprehending means being united, uh, grasp, being grasped by God and possessing him fully according to our own capacity. Only God, strictly speaking, though, comprehends himself. Only God fully understands himself. But we, according to God's good pleasure, are raised up to be united to God and to be as full as possible for our created nature. Now, there was a controversy in the Middle Ages about, about heaven and whether we really did see the divine essence and the immediacy of this. Uh, because uh, what about, say, uh, the, uh, so we're here at St. Peter's on Capitol Hill. Uh, St. Peter's uh, remains are at St. Peter's Rome. How do, does he really see the divine essence? Because he hasn't yet had the, the resurrected body. Pope Benedict XII, in his Benedictus Deus in 1336, wants people to know that there is this great immediacy of being able actually to see God face to face and that, there's, um, that the saints um, need not wait until the resurrection of the body, until the last day, okay? Because God allows the saints, um, this, you know, God allows these souls to be united to him. Now, in heaven then, there is the perfect satisfaction of all desires. It's not just simply that the intellect is fully um, uh, is fully uh, uh, engaged in, in God, all of our desires are fulfilled, and God alone satisfies. I love at the end of St. Augustine's City of God, book 22, he says, There in heaven we shall rest and see, see and love, love and praise. This is what shall be in the end without end. For what other end do we propose to ourselves than to attain to the kingdom of which there is no end? Notice the order of the verbs. We shall rest and see, see and love, love and praise. It's also important for this life on earth. You need to be able to have some sort of rest, really to be able to see, to know. And how can you love that which you do not know? So then, to be able to contemplate, to have that rest, to see, and then to see, to, to love that which you see, and then based upon that love, to praise. Well, if that's true during this life on earth, how much truer is in heaven? Where is the eternal rest, okay? The eternal uh, ability to rest, to have God's peace, and then to see, to see God, to love him as he deserves to be loved, as we long to love, and then to be able to let it all out in praise.
Now, some people are not attracted to worship here upon this earth. But man is a worshiping creature. Okay, I had a high school friend who said to me, the problem with a self-made man is that he worships his creator. Okay, so that's where um, we're not self-made men. We want to worship our creator with a capital C. And, uh, and this is where we just think, ah, we need to go to God, to God. St. John Henry Newman, in his sermon how, uh, about holiness is necessary for blessedness, says, heaven would be hell to an irreligious man. Heaven would be hell to an irreligious man. Have you ever thought about this? Um, uh, so he continues, we know how unhappy we are apt to feel at present when alone in the midst of strangers or of men of different tastes and habits from ourselves. How miserable, for example, would it be to have to live in a foreign land among a people whose faces we never saw before and whose language we could not learn. And this is but a faint illustration of the loneliness of a man of earthly dispositions and tastes thrust into the society of saints and angels. How forlorn would he wander through the courts of heaven? He would find no one like himself. He would see in every direction the marks of God's holiness, and these would make him shudder. He would feel himself always in his presence. He could no longer turn his thoughts another way, as he does now, when conscience reproaches him. He would know that the eternal eye was ever upon him, and that eye of holiness, which is joy and life to holy creatures, would seem to him an eye of wrath and punishment. God cannot change his nature. Holy he must ever be. But while he is holy, no unholy soul can be happy in heaven. Right? Because what is the main activity of heaven? It's praising God. And if people really don't want to praise God, they wouldn't like heaven. Heaven, in fact, would be hell. That's the importance of thinking about praising God here upon this earth and the desire to praise. Okay, so, so uh, and it doesn't mean, because sometimes people think, oh, uh, what, does God need compliments? Does God, God doesn't need us at all. Don't you realize, you know, it's like when we really are happy about something and just something is just really extraordinary, we got to say it to somebody. We want other people to know how happy we are, how, how beautiful something is, <clears throat> how glorious someone is. And we just, you know, and, you know, sometimes we need to say, I love you, you know. Well, and, and then think about God. All of us here on this earth are passing away in terms of things of this earth. But we're made to live with God forever. And God alone satisfies. He, by his grace, allows us to see that our hearts are meant for him Right, so the third section now is the resurrection of the body. Reigning with Christ, we are called to reign with Christ, who is risen from the dead. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead, and so shall we. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead, and so shall we. The question is, will we rise for the resurrection of the just unto glory, 
or rise for the resurrection of condemnation into hell? That is the question. And we want to be reigning with Christ in his glory. This means that there will be, um, you know, what is sown uh, is, uh, well, is, um, is not really that great in terms of, uh, when you look at the long view, our bodies uh, break down. But then, from this, God will have a resurrected body that lasts forever. He who said, let there be light when there was nothing, has the power, the authority, to make from whatever infinitesimally small things from our body into a glorious body. That he will conform our lowly bodies to Christ's glorious body. And the Catholic tradition talks about some of the qualities of what the risen body is like. You know, being in heaven will have this risen body and glory. St. Thomas says in Summa Contra Gentiles Book 4, just as the soul of man will be elevated to the glory of heavenly spirits to see God in his essence, so also will his body be raised up to the characteristic of heavenly bodies. It will be lightsome and capable of suffering without difficulty in labor and movement and most perfectly perfected by its form. For this reason, the apostle speaks of the bodies of the risen as heavenly, referring not to their nature, but to their glory. Hence, after he said that there are bodies celestial and bodies terrestrial, he added, one is the glory of the celestial and another the terrestrial, 1 Corinthians 15. Just as, of course, the glory to which the human soul is exalted exceeds the natural power of the heavenly spirits, so does the glory of the risen bodies exceed the natural perfection of the heavenly bodies as to have a greater lightsomeness, a more stable incapacity for suffering, an easier agility, and a more perfect worthiness of nature. We then, in the risen body, will have special endowments of clarity, impassibility, agility, and subtlety. These are various qualities that we don't have now, but then we'll have the body in such a way, in glorious form, where we bodily can live forever. No human being becomes an angel. Sometimes, sometimes people will talk about Oh, uh, the person become an angel. No, angels are different. Angels don't have bodies. We're meant to be body and soul forever. One, uh, one theological opinion I have is that there's another endowment, cruciformity. Because I think in heaven, everybody's uh, glorious cross will shine out in bodily form. We'll all be individual, okay? Uh, St. Augustine affirms that uh, men will rise as men, women will rise as women. Uh, uh, St. Augustine says that in the risen body, you in your glorified eyes will be able to know God's presence. Just as today, when you look at someone and you can't see that person's soul, but the person is attentive, smiling, nodding, you know that that person has a soul even though you don't see the soul, in the resurrection, everything to the glorified eyeballs will cry out, God is here. God is here. Astounding. Because during this life on earth, all sorts of people 
don't know God at all. But in heaven, there's no mistaking. There's the beatific vision where the soul is perfectly united to God. And in the risen body, the, the glorified vision will be able to see God radiating his glory from everything. And then how do we get there? It's because of the passion of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, pick up your cross and follow me. My fourth section before the conclusion, so the final section before the conclusion, is the Society of Angels and Saints Forever. Some people don't like St. Thomas's account of heaven because it seems to be too much focused on the soul as an individual. There's a, a great professor from the Catholic University of America who is a Dominican layman, and he's now on the International Theological Commission, Reinhard Huter, whose book, Bound for Beatitude, A Thomistic Study in Eschatology and Ethics, is highly recommended. He talks about how in heaven, for a Thomistic theology, there is a great place for friendship. Friendship. Right? Not only, obviously, the friendship with God, of seeing your friend, God, face to face, but of being with the countless host of angels and saints. Reinhard Huter goes to Prima Secunde, question 4, article 8. Friendship is, as it were, concomitant with perfect happiness. Huter continues, The truth of the intrinsic relation between the consummate good, its perfect possession by an intellect, and the intellect's beatitude constitutes the metaphysical backdrop of the fundamentally theocentric orientation of Aquinas' eschatological vision. The added supposition of other humans, one suffices to make the point, present in the participated eternity of heaven, like the supposition of the resurrection of the body, is a definitive truth of divine revelation held by divine faith. Right? That this is the Catholic faith. That there will be a society of angels and saints in heaven. Peter then continues, the organizing principle that integrates both truths into the one comprehensive horizon of sacred theology is the principle that grace does not destroy but perfects nature. Okay, one of the most important Thomistic uh, axioms. Grace does not destroy, but perfects nature. <laughs> Applying this principle to the beatific vision, Aquinas posits a continuity between the natural and the supernatural life of the human being. The supernatural life does not build onto human nature by adding something inherently alien on top of it. Rather, the supernatural life extends the very capacity of human nature by elevating its faculties along the lines of their natural finality, so that humans can indeed become deiform, and thus fully realize the likeness for which we are created and toward which we are ordered. The participated eternity of heavenly life is thus indeed not the abrogation or even annihilation, but rather the sublimation and fulfillment of earthly life in its very transformation into the deiformitas that the light of glory effects and that in turn affords the immediate vision of God. Right? So this is where, think about charity. When Jesus is asked, what is the first and greatest commandment? He gives not only the Shema from Deuteronomy, you shall love the Lord your God with your whole heart, soul, body, and strength, mind, and strength. He not only says this wholeness about loving God, and he says, and the second is like it, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Charity is always twinned. And then to think about how heaven, in our love of God, okay, which is complete, okay, 
that you then love your neighbor. You love your neighbor as yourself. So just as charity works here upon earth, so there's this everlasting charity of heaven, of having the neighbor there. Now, note how Jesus taught us one prayer, the Our Father. And just think about the first few words of it. Our Father who art in heaven. Beginnings are very important. And what Jesus does in introducing the prayer is he introduces our beginning and our end. Because we want to go back to our Father who art in heaven. Through Jesus. Through his saving prayer on the cross. Through his obedience and charity that works our salvation. That we are meant to go to our Father. Not just my Father. Our Father. And where is he? In heaven. Then we can know an extraordinary peace. Peace. Peace within our soul. You know, our lives are complicated. Okay? Our lives are complicated. And in heaven, there's this great simplification of peace. Everything is perfectly ordered. St. Augustine gives a famous definition of peace as the tranquility of order. And then to see how heaven shows us the reality of that. Being perfectly ordered by God and, and then being ordered with one another. St. Augustine says, by the way, that one of the ways that show the fourth the peace of it, during this life on earth, don't you get into all sorts of complications because you don't know what she's thinking. You don't know what he's thinking. And sometimes you don't know what you're thinking. <laughs> In heaven, because of the glory, there's this great transparency. The heavenly light just goes through our very being. And at one glance, you'll know. You know. You have nothing to hide. Nothing to hide. And, and so there's no, there's no drama, okay? There's no, no complicated drama. There's only love and praise. You know, rest, sight, love, praise. Now, there are a few little paragraphs from the Catechism of the Catholic Church that can help us consider a little bit more about the everlasting state of things, the new heaven and a new earth. The church teaches, at the end of time, the kingdom of God will come in its fullness. After the universal judgment, the righteous will reign forever with Christ, glorified in body and soul. The universe itself will be renewed. The church will receive her perfection only in the glory of heaven. When will come the time of the renewal of all things? At that time, together with the human race, the universe itself, which is so closely related to man, which attains its destiny through him, will be perfectly reestablished in Christ. The church continues, Sacred scripture calls this mysterious renewal, which will transform humanity and the world, new heavens and a new earth. It will be the definitive realization of God's plan to bring under a single head all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. Okay, all, all will be in Christ. The reconciliation of all things in Jesus Christ. In this new universe, the heavenly Jerusalem, God will have his dwelling among men. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, 
for the former things have passed away. In Jerusalem, Jerusalem, city of peace, vision of peace. The catechism continues, for man, this consummation will be the final realization of the unity of the human race, which God willed from creation and of which the pilgrim church has been in the nature of sacrament. Those who are united with Christ will form the community of the redeemed, the holy city of God, the bride, the wife of the lamb. She will not be wounded any longer by sin, stains, self-love that destroy or wound the earthly community. The beatific vision in which God opens himself in an inexhaustible way to the elect will be the ever-flowing wellspring of happiness, peace, and mutual communion. At the end of time, the kingdom of God will come in its fullness. Then the just will reign with Christ forever, glorified in body and soul, and the material universe itself will be transformed. God will then be all in all in eternal life. Now, for the conclusion, and then we'll have our questions and answers, I want us to think about the reality of praying for someone who has died. I want you to hear the first of the prefaces of the Mass for the dead. And then to think about how the church prays this, that the church will pray for us after we have died. And then to consider the great mystery now of being able to give up, give up everything of this passing world because we found our treasure. We found the pearl of great price. It is truly right and just, our duty and our salvation, always and everywhere to give you thanks, Lord, Holy Father, Almighty and Eternal God, through Christ our Lord. In him, the hope of blessed resurrection has dawned, that those saddened by the certainty of dying might be consoled by the promise of immortality to come. Indeed, for your faithful Lord, life is changed, not ended. And when this earthly dwelling turns to dust, an eternal dwelling is made ready for them in heaven. And so with angels and archangels, with thrones and dominions, with all the hosts and powers of heaven, we sing the hymn of your glory, as without end we acclaim. And then the church goes on, Holy, holy, holy Lord God of hosts. Thank you. when you started off by quoting Psalm 26, and you said one thing. And as you spoke, I found myself, I desire a lot of things, but my heart was continually moved to desire that one thing more and more. So thank you. We have time for about um, 15, 20 minutes of question and answer. Um, I'll let you okay, call on people. Yes. Will we do anything else? Okay, so will we do anything else other than praise? Praising is going to be the thing that really is um, how we are fulfilled. So that's where uh, we then <coughs> will be able to live a life, a human life, but a glorified human life. And this is where eye has not seen nor ear heard. We don't know certain details. Will we have community? Yes. 
Will we be able to see one another? Yes. Will we be able to communicate? Yes. And that is all done within an everlasting happiness. And so, so this is where uh, that, that the praise then, because St. Augustine famously says in his sermon uh, about amen, hallelujah, he says, oh, I can see that you're delighted, but now you're thinking, amen, hallelujah, we're going to be doing all that all the time? That will be boring. Who can stand it? And then he says, it's not, just, it's not about actually saying the words amen and hallelujah. It's something in the heart that the heart forever knows it's true. Praise God. It's true. Praise God. And that nothing then, that, that there's a fixedness, a stability being in God where nothing can take it away and that there's this perfect rest there. Okay? So that's where everything, all the desires will be satisfied and we'll be able to live a human life, a glorified human life, in utter praise. Okay, there was another hand. Yep. Yeah, so, uh, so the material universe itself will be transformed. Uh, uh, St. Paul in the letter to the Romans talks about how all creation is, is awaiting the revelation of the sons of God. Um, I don't know exactly how this will be. But I do know that there will be a new heavens and a new earth, okay? That we, um, uh, so the book of Revelation talks about how there's no longer a temple, so regarding the architecture, because there's no need for a temple. The Lord God himself will give them light, okay? That you'll be able to see. So you will not be going to St. Peter's on Capitol Hill for Sunday Mass, okay? Okay? Because, yeah, uh, in heaven... Um, there are no ministrations of the sacraments. The sacraments are for us here upon this earth in order to get to heaven. The sacraments will have done their work, okay? Uh, uh, there will be uh, no more preaching, okay? <laughs> I'm a preacher, okay? They'll be praising, though. But uh, notice then how... how uh, you need to affirm that there's, that there's a material reality, but that material reality is glorified and that it'll be different. So there'll be some connection with our experience of this life on earth, but then um, there'll be something very, very different. So two questions. One, about why did God have this arranged so that there's so much disposing? Of things, and then two. Well, what about the place for mourning, for crying, for missing our loved ones? All right. So first off, one. Yes, there's all sorts of disposing concerning um, lots of uh, what philosophers, some philosophers would call substantial changes. One thing that's very interesting that Thomas will emphasize is that God does not annihilate. God, who said, "Let there be light from nothing," He does not annihilate. So things can be radically transformed, okay? And scientists can talk about matter and energy and all, all sorts of things. But notice that there's a transformation as opposed to an annihilation, okay? And there are radical transformations in this world that is passing away, but that God does not annihilate. And that there's something about, uh, about our very body now 
that because of the infinitesimal things, uh, you know, and scientists can talk about all the various infinitesimally small things uh, in any object, let alone a human body. There's something, though, that God um, can mark and can, um, can do. Now, in the early church, uh, pagans sometimes heard this, and they would ridicule Christians because who wanted to have a resurrected body? That sounded gross to people, okay? It was, it was the sense of was trying to escape from the body. And so St. Augustine says, at no point is the Christian faith more ridiculed than the resurrection of the body. And people say, well, what if, um, what if the body went into the sea and then fish ate the body and then go into, you know, and then you eat the fish, you know? And so they, they would consider all these different arguments. And, and it goes back to God's power and his design and that even though there are these radical transformations and, and a sense of sort of disposing, there's never an annihilation. The other thing, uh, the, other, the second question about the place, saying, um, for mourning or for missing, St. Paul says, I think, to the Thessalonians um, that we grieve, but not as those who have no hope. All right, so that's where you can think about how Our Lady at the foot of the cross is the mother of sorrows, okay? She saw her son crucified. She wept. And she's a model for us. For, for us who love during this life on earth, we expose ourselves both to joys and sorrows. You think about the rosary. You know, why do we have joyful mysteries? Why do we have sorrowful mysteries? The Catholic Church actually always wants to emphasize during this life on earth that we have a life not only of joys, but of sorrows. Joys and sorrows. But our sorrow is always within this constancy of a joy. So St. Paul says in the letter to Philippians chapter 4, rejoice in the Lord always. And in a sense, Christians can even be more sorrowful because we are able to have a joy that sustains it all. Because it, some people would just want to shut down in the sorrow, but if you have a joy, if you have something that sustains it, that you can actually expose yourself even more to more sorrow because you can take it. Okay? Yeah. Yes? You talk about the joy and the beauty of life. That's right. So the question is, during this time on earth, we pray for the souls in purgatory because the souls in purgatory are not yet experiencing heaven. They, they, they long to go to heaven. They long to be purified, especially through our prayers and sacrifices. You know, to offer the sacrifice of the Mass for a beloved one who has passed. That these are all various traditional practices because the souls in purgatory are helpless for themselves. But the church on earth knows that we are, to, that we are still united by, to them by bonds of charity and that we want to help them to go to heaven, All right? So, that, yes, and then to see how every, again, every soul in purgatory will go to heaven. Yes? Yes? Right, so this is where um, the desire to experience purgatory, St. Catherine of Genoa has a treatise on purgation and purgatory where she says, there's no greater joy except in heaven as what you find in purgatory. Now, purgatory has a tremendous 
suffering and sorrow that is greater than anything here upon this earth in the sense of, of, of that pain, but it's not a pain of loss. It's not hell. And they are all assured. It's not like, oh, I wonder if I'm going to get to heaven. No, no, no. They all know. And that's why St. Catherine of Genoa then emphasizes the joy of purgatory, the joyful souls of purgatory, because uh, you think about the Psalms of Ascent uh, in, in the Psalter, I rejoiced when I heard them say, let us go to God's house. I rejoiced when I heard them say, let us go to God's house. In a sense, that is a psalm line that's perfect in purgatory. I rejoiced when I heard them say, let us go. Okay, so exactly, yes. Okay, so uh, what is the Blessed Virgin Mary like in heaven? And how is heaven you know, with the Blessed Virgin Mary? She's wonderful. Okay, so, <laughs> so the Blessed Virgin Mary is assumed into heaven, body, and soul. Sometimes people will say, oh, heaven's not a place, it's a state. Uh, Jesus Christ is risen from the dead bodily, and uh, Our Lady received uh, this particular privilege of being united to her son so that she is bodily. So uh, in 1950, Pope Pius XII defined this in Munificentissimus Deus, so that way that the, that's part of divine Catholic faith, that we believe that Mary... It is enjoying God and that she is body and soul, right? So then how uh, she's raised above all the angels. I love how in some depictions of the Assumption, uh, there are angels that give Our Lady a bit of a push. Have you ever noticed this? Okay, so like Christ is never pushed by, by the angels when he ascends, because he ascends, he ascends to heaven. Whereas um, Our Lady... You know, sometimes you see these little cherubs or, you know, kind of give, give them a little nudge to Our Lady as, as she's going up, okay? Um, uh, because, because one, she is, she is raised above all, uh, all angels and, and to, be, to be next to her son. And then, uh, and then she, uh, you know, Jesus, who went to his father's right hand, did not abandon us. Okay, think about the last words of Matthew 28. I am with you always, even until the end of the world. Okay? So those were his last words before the ascension. And, and how he wants his mother, in a special way, to, to, um, to, to love us. Okay? Because what did he say on, at the cross? Behold your mother. Okay? So, so that's where she has gone way up. And that's how she can be so close to us now. Okay. She is the gate of heaven, uh, and, uh, and she is showing us the power of her son. Yes? Okay, so to distinguish between that which is immediate, um, a medium, and that which is ultimate. So God wants us to rest uh, every seventh day. We're called to have a day of rest, okay? So just then to think about worship, worship on Sunday, and then how in, in the act of going to Sunday Mass, you are beginning something of what is happening in heaven, okay? I told you that you won't, 
you, know, you, you won't be going to St. Peter's on Capitol Hill uh, uh, in heaven uh, for a particular Sunday Mass. Because this, this is the time of the sacraments where then you can then think about the ultimate. And that more and more in the busyness of your life to ask for the grace you know, to be still and know that the Lord is God. Right? And then to have practices, say, early in the morning or at different times of the day, to get away from it all, get away from electronics, um, to be, you know, uh, uh, even the, the one that you most love, okay? If you're married, at times, you need to be separate from your spouse. You need to worship together, but you just cannot be hand in hand through every moment of the day. And then to be able to see that, um, that there's something about, uh, about being alone with God, being alone with God, whether that be just a few seconds or a half hour, and to be able to be intentional about, about knowing that God is our end, that we're made for him, and particularly to be, to be with him forever in heaven. Right? Do we have time for one more question? Or one more question. Okay, yes. Great. Okay, so how does God show us his charity through the saints? In the Liturgy of the Hours, one of the options for the invitatory psalm when you have uh, holy men and holy women is God is wonderful in his saints. God is wonderful in his saints. And that's where God has all, God is that infinite goodness, and every saint has a particular share in goodness. Okay, so Jesus says, why do you call me good? Only one is good. Okay, so God is the one good. And all saints, you know, the saint is just another word to say holy. Okay, um, uh, uh, one is the holy one, you know, holy one. But all the saints then, in a sense, are refracting something of the infinite beauty of who God is. And that it's, it's precisely in the communion of saints, the vast multitude, you know, that no one can number from every race, tribe, people, and nation, that then we can see something of the infinite uh, goodness of God, something about how Christ, you know, there's one Christ, and then all the members of Christ, uh, that we're all in Christ, and the diversity within this unity allows us um, to, to, to see something about God that we, that we couldn't otherwise because of our own, uh, our own you know, way of, of being one of these. And so how beautiful it is to have Our Lady and, all, and think about the angels too. So in the communion of saints, the angels and saints, uh, and how, how this, this shows forth the manifold glory of God. So together we can praise God Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. May the peace and blessing of Almighty God, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit come down on you and reign with you forever. Thank you very much.